So finally, church, we do come to an end of this letter of Galatians. We have been going verse by verse through this letter for months. Now we come to a close with these final three verses from the Apostle Paul. And on these verses, we might be prone to think that they'll essentially just sort of be a few general, nice concluding verses by Paul as he winds down this letter. Because in some ways, that's often what happens in some of his other letters to his churches. But remember, last week in verse 11, we saw that Paul is writing with his own hand here and with large letters for emphasis. And also remember, this this is no normal church situation here in these Galatian churches. Rather, this is written to a group of churches which have started to believe a false message about Jesus. And so it's with that in mind that what we'll see here this morning is that Paul, what he says here is quite unique. And it's especially powerful. And that's because basically with the whole letter behind him, what Paul will do to conclude this letter is both in a sense summarize much of Galatians, and then also he's going to add a powerful punch to the truthfulness of what he has written. All in just a few verses. But that said, that brings us to our outline of how we will cover these final verses. And so in this letter together, we'll have two main sections together, two main sections this morning, with the first section being what we'll spend most of our time on, and then the second section being a little bit shorter. So two main sections. And as for what they are, first, we will spend most of our time actually just covering verse 16, because there Paul will give sort of a summary of a lot of this letter of Galatians as he talks about walking by this rule And we'll talk about that. And then second, though, after that, we will more briefly cover verse 17, which is more of a personal note from Paul. And so in summary, two main sections. First, for most of our time, verse 16. Second, verse 17. And then finally, just so you know, we will conclude our time with verse 18, as that is how Paul concludes the whole letter. But that said, church, let's then dive in and finish this letter this morning. And we will begin then with our first section. And for this, again, we're in just verse 16, where Paul will give a fitting summary in a way of Galatians, especially in talking about walking by this rule. And so to begin on this, though, let's just read verse 16, and then we'll talk about how we'll break it down. So look at your Bibles, Galatians 6, 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So so some of that might sound strange, especially since I just said that that verse, in a way, is a helpful summary of a lot of Galatians. And to be honest, for myself, before studying this, for, for teaching this, I myself kind of thought that this verse 16 was a strange ending from Paul, especially with that word that's translated rule there. But as you'll start to see, this really is a brilliant way to end so much of Galatians. But now to see why, And what this verse means, we're going to ask three questions about this verse. Three questions. And all the questions will concern what Paul means by that phrase, this rule. So three questions. First, we'll ask, what is this rule that we're to walk by? And then second, we'll ask, and what are the benefits of walking by this rule? And then third, we'll ask, and who is this for? Who gets these benefits? So three questions on this one verse. What is this rule? What are the benefits of walking by it? And who gets it? So let's take those one at a time first. What is this rule? And it's this that personally I'd never seen before studying this this week. And this is really intentional and clever by Paul to choose this word. And to begin on it though, let's just focus on that word rule itself. 
Because to us, maybe most of us in this room, that, that maybe sounds like something we really need to do, like a work, like when we say obey the rules. But that's not actually what this word really means or is getting at. And that's why, to be honest, this maybe isn't the best translation. Instead, this word rule here is the now famous-ish Greek word kanon, from which we get our English word canon. Right? And for us, when we hear that, we may think about the canon of Scripture. And that's because if you ever heard that term, the canon of Scripture is talking about the books of the Bible that are rightly in our Bible. And so we use the word like that now. And the reason for that, though, is because originally the word canon or canon back then simply referred to a measuring stick. A measuring stick. A measuring stick from which architects would make straight lines and make proper measurements. And, and so that's this word. That's the picture. How do you measure something is accurate? How do you make lines straight instead of crooked? A canon or a rule, which is why in English we now call a measuring stick a ruler. Right? And therefore, with that in mind, then this word maybe more accurately could be translated something like this standard, right? Because standard has the idea that there is a proper measurement. There, there is a straight way as opposed to what's crooked. But, but how do you know what it is? Well, you need the measuring stick. Right? You need to know what the standard is, the canon. And so that's just the word rule that Paul uses here. He's writing with his own pen, remember, and he decides to say in verse 16, and to all who walk by this rule, this canon, Right, and that's fascinating in itself because perhaps we would think that after everything in Galatians, he would write here in verse 16, and for all who walk by this gospel, or who walk by this message, or who walk by the spear, all of which would have fit and been fine. But instead, Paul in a way here is using his apostolic authority, authority right? and he's using this word canon to show that this gospel is the measurement. It is the standard for all of us concerning what is true about Jesus. Meaning there are many teachings out there. Back then and today, people may be using the name of Jesus or claiming the Bible or using even the word gospel, but it is this Jesus-given apostolic standard that we're to measure everything by and walk by or live by in our lives. And so that's the word rule here in walking by this rule. But still we might ask, but what is the rule? Because sure, there is a standard, a gospel rule, but the question we're asking really is, what is it? And to answer that, I'm sure you know, we could of course just generally say that it's everything we've seen in Galatians and, and everything in our New Testaments, which is why we call it the canon of Scripture, and that would be true. But perhaps even more specific and helpful, we can quickly look at even just the immediate context here to see what it is, taking into account what Paul just wrote, which we covered last week. And so for this, especially remember what he said, what he just wrote in verses 14 and 15. Because first, look down in verse 14, remember we saw how Paul, in contrast to false teachers, which boast a lot in what we do and what they do, Paul says that he boasts in Jesus and Jesus' cross alone. And in context, then, that's, that's first a helpful way of summarizing a big part of this rule, this gospel standard. It's the fact that we boast in Jesus and his cross alone. Meaning we know we need to be saved and we know we are saved by Jesus and his cross alone. 
And thinking about it, that being part of the standard, the rule then means for you and I that if someone were to come to us, for example, and say, sure, Jesus saves us, and though we need to do this or that to earn being okay with God, then we know that that's against the standard, and that's just not true. Or if someone says Jesus is a positive example, that's mainly what he is, and Christianity is mainly just about being good or a loving person for God's sake, we say no to that as well because the standard is primarily about Jesus and his cross. Or finally, and perhaps most common in many people's thinking today, if someone does acknowledge that God is real and he's loving and he's loving and he does forgive us, but they skip past Jesus and the need for the cross because they think that God can forgive without the cross, then we say no to that as well. And why? Again, because the standard, the canon, the measuring stick is boasting in Jesus and his cross. That is the heartbeat of Jesus's gospel, the good news. And so that's the first part of this standard. You can see then how that, in a way, starts to summarize a lot of Galatians. But then there's, in a way, a second aspect of the standard, too. And that's what Paul says right before this verse in verse 15. Because there he, again, is clear that it isn't about what we do, like in being circumcised or not being circumcised. Instead, what counts? Well, you can see it being made new. What counts is, quote, a new creation. And in a way, that then summarizes a big part of this gospel, this standard as well, because as we talked about last week, basically all other religions or the world's basic way of just thinking or false teachings in the name of Jesus, they basically all make life about us just basically doing better, right? being more moral and good people. But, but we know that is not the emphasis of Christianity. Rather, the gospel, the good news, the true standard, which is reality, is that first, we are saved and okay now and forever by Christ alone. And then second, it's not mainly about us being good or better for God, but it's about God making us new. And so maybe that was a lot, but I hope you're now seeing that that's what Paul means by, quote, and and for all who walk by this rule. And that's why this is so clever, because he could have just said, as he ends, you need to believe the real gospel. And that's true, but instead, saying it this way emphasizes that in our lives, as we live, as we walk day in and day out, and especially as we claim to be Christians and those who love and trust Jesus, this gospel must be our rule, our standard, our measuring stick, because this is the one true gospel of Jesus. And so that's our first question on this section. What is this rule? But that then leads us now to our second question. And here we'll ask him, what are the benefits of walking by this rule? And for this, we won't spend as much time because as you can see in the verse, the answer is pretty obvious because Paul writes, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And each of those terms is significant because first, as for peace, remember in the Bible and from the Jewish apostle Paul, peace isn't just an internal feeling of okayness. It includes that, but it is way bigger. And that's because the word peace is ultimately talking about what the Old Testament called shalom, which is peace with God now and more peace with one another and more peace within ourselves. And it is living in peace forever with all of creation once again. And so that's the benefit of peace we get in the gospel of Jesus. But then second, those who walk by this rule also receive mercy as well. 
And mercy is essentially just a word that means God sees us in our suffering, in our misery, which is often caused by our sin, or at least by sin in the world. And mercy is getting across the point that God decides to lovingly do something about it for us. He decides to treat us better than we could ever deserve. And so that's the benefits. And now, of course, we could spend much more time on all that. But, but in summary, then, that peace and mercy... And as you can see, if you skip down to verse 18, Paul adds that word grace as well. Those terms are almost a summary way of talking about the benefits we get in the gospel. We get peace with God. We get him being merciful to us in Christ. And we receive his grace and much more. And how does that all happen? Well, not by earning it. Peace and mercy are not earned. They are not worked toward. Rather, they are upon us as we walk by, as our lives are defined by this standard of the gospel, which is living our lives and believing and knowing that we are saved and made new by Christ alone. And so that's what this rule is. That is the benefits. But now that leads us to our third and last question on this one verse in this first section, and that's, and who is this for? Who gets these benefits? And what we're about to see here is perhaps the most surprising thing, most people agree with that, that Paul brings up here in his final few verses. And it may be the most confusing to you at first, but we will break it down together because it's really helpful for us to understand concerning who we are, and it's especially helpful for us to understand our Bibles and the Old Testament in Israel and how that relates to the gospel of Christ and the church and you and me. But all that said, with that in mind, let's read verse 16 one last time. And as you hear this, ask yourself, and who is this for? Who, who gets these benefits of peace and mercy in the standard of the gospel of Christ? Verse 16, one last time. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So, so who is this for? Well, to begin, most simply, this is for, quote, all who walk by this rule. And that shows us it, it, it's for anyone who trusts in this gospel of Jesus Christ. So, and so that's who this is for. But then perhaps most peculiar is what the Bible then says at the end of this verse. And that's how peace and mercy is, quote, and upon the Israel of God. And that's fascinating, isn't it? And upon the Israel of God. And so the question is, what is Paul talking about? Why bring up Israel? Not only that, but why say and upon the Israel of God? Is he talking about Two groups in this verse, Christians and ethnic Israel, or one group of people with Christians and Israel now being the same group? What's going on? And it is in answering all that where we see that what Paul is doing here and what he's writing, what he's getting at, is quite brilliant in his argument, and it's actually pretty important for us. And so what does this mean? Well, first, let's deal with that issue of, is this two groups of people or one group? Is he meaning Christians are, and Israel are two groups here who receive priests and mercy, or is Christians and the Israel of God now one group, the same group? And we need to ask that, especially because of that and upon the Israel of God there. So is this two groups or one group? Well, briefly, so that we all get this, most people studying Galatians will almost unanimously agree that this verse is almost certainly referring to one group not two groups. Meaning that all who walk by this rule, Christians, and the Israel of God are the same people here according to Paul. And that's a big deal, which, which we will talk about in a bit. 
but, but briefly, just so we all are on the same page on this, so you get this, as to why most people know that almost certainly Paul is talking about one group here, it's because of a few things, a few things. And let me just share these with you, even, because even though you might think this is just some theological point that isn't significant to you at first, if you think about it, what we're saying is that the Apostle Paul here, and, and therefore God through Paul here, is teaching that those who trust in Jesus are the Israel God, which is a huge theological statement if it's, if it's true. And so we really need to get this right. And so are these the same group? And if so, why are these referring to the same group? Well, quickly, three reasons. Three reasons. First, and most simply, it's helpful to know that in Greek, that word and there is the same word that they'd use for the word even or indeed. It is, and in fact, it's the most common word in Greek, the word chi. And so that means that when Paul says, and upon the Israel of God, it could also be translated even or indeed upon the Israel of God. And in fact, two really popular translations take it this way. The NIV interprets this verse with, quote, if you have the NIV, you can see it. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. And so does the NLT, which paraphrases this verse, quote, may God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. And so that's the first reason this is one group, because that word and there can also mean even or indeed. But then second, and perhaps even bigger than that, as to, all, as to why all who walk by this rule are the Israel of God, think also about if you've been with us for some time, or if you haven't, and you know this book at all, you know the teachings of Paul at all, think about what Paul has said about the people of God so far in Galatians. And this really helps us start to see why Paul would bring up Israel here as he end this letter. Because think about it, concerning the people of God in Galatians, remember, Paul has argued over and over that those who trust in Jesus now are the true children of Abraham, meaning they are the true Israelites. For example, consider Galatians 3.29, quote, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And other verses could be cited as well. And so this means for Paul, who, remember, was an ethnic Jew himself, one of his main arguments in this whole letter has been that Abraham's true children aren't those who keep the law or who are ethnic Jews necessarily, but they are those who believe in Jesus Christ. That leads third to the last reason why, amazingly, those who believe in Jesus are the Israel of God and that's just taking into consideration Paul's whole point about Jew and Gentile unity in this book of Galatians. Because remember, in addition to being Abraham's true children, another of Paul's main points in this letter has been that the Gentiles, the nations, are fellow and equal heirs if they trust in Christ. And not only that, but being heirs in Christ, Paul's point ultimately has been, as he says in Galatians 3.28, quote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so that said, if you're tracking, it would be totally against what Paul has been teaching in this letter if now here, at the end of this book, he decides to separate Gentiles and Jews into two groups. And so I know that was a lot, but that's why this verse is really referring to one group, those who trust in Jesus. 
And that matters because to be clear then, the Bible is saying here that the Israel of God now is all who walk by this rule, meaning from God through the Jewish apostle Paul himself and from the other apostles, we should know that in God's plan now, the Israel of God are those who trust in Jesus. And so if you trust in Jesus, you are in the Israel of God. That is Paul's point. And quickly on this, just so you know, the reason Scholars who study this a lot think that Paul is probably using this language of Israel here is because it's possible that these false teachers who, remember, were teaching that you must believe in Jesus and be circumcised and essentially become Jewish to be saved, it's possible that they were saying that they were the Israel of God. But Paul is saying no. Now that Christ has come, the true Israel of God aren't ethnic Jews necessarily or those who are circumcised, or those who try to keep the law. Instead, from Paul's own pen, the Israel of God is all those who trust in Jesus and this gospel, full stop. Now, I know that probably brings up a lot of questions. Questions like, well, what about the Old Testament and so many of God's promises then? Or, well, what about ethnic Israel? Or what about how that then relates to us in the church? And those are all really good questions. If we had more time, we could spell that out a lot more. But in basic, there is a really, really helpful way, I think, of summarizing the biblical teaching on all, on all of that. And this is something I'd encourage you to remember and, and maybe even write down. And as for what it is, if you're trying to remember or you're writing it down, it'd be writing the word Israel and then an arrow and then the word Christ and then another arrow, and then Christ Church, or slash us. Or if we were to say it out loud, the answer to a lot of those questions concerning all of those things about the Old Testament and us and Israel is Israel to Christ, to Christ Church, or, or us. And really, that sounds simple, but that's something I didn't make up, and that really is an incredibly helpful way of summarizing a lot of how this worked and how this still works and God's plan and the whole Old Testament with what God was doing with the story of Israel, how it connects to Christ and how, where we fit. Israel to Christ, to Christ's church to us. And, and so, to, so to break that down, what it means is to begin concerning Israel, meaning the ethnic people of Israel and the whole story of the people of Israel. What's clear in the Bible is that it was always meant to be and is fulfilled in Christ. Israel to Christ. And that's why, for example, if you now think of these sort of verses, in other places of the Bible, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, Jewish Apostle Paul, say things like, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. Meaning, all the promises of God from the Old Testament, which, remember, were promises mainly made to ethnic Israel, they are fulfilled in Christ. Or, if this helps, you can explain this Israel to Christ in another way by saying that Christ himself is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. Because think about it. Jesus Christ is the true Israelite. He's the obedient Israelite. He's the fulfillment of the Israelite temple, the presence of God, the sacrifices, the stories, like the Exodus and the manna coming from heaven, the fulfillment of the kings, the prophets, the priests, the shepherd leaders, the true judges, the promised inheritance. All of that foreshadowed and is fulfilled in Christ. And all of the promises about those things are now fulfilled in Christ. And that's why, and I love this, even just in Galatians, technically. And remember, Paul is so precise and clear about this. It's why, remember in chapter 3, 
when Paul is talking about Abraham's promise, who is it that Paul is clear that the promise to Abraham was technically made to? (laughs) Well, he says it was made to Abraham's offspring, singular. And he goes so far as to make very clear that it's not offsprings, multiple people, but offspring. Because, he says, technically that promise was made to Jesus. And so again, Israel to Christ. That really is a way to summarize the point of the whole Old Testament, the stories, the choosing of the people of ethnic Israel, all of what happened and all the promises were pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true Israelite, the Messiah King. But now, then what about us? And what about ethnic Israel now? Well, Israel to Christ, to Christ's church, to us. And this is maybe will be so helpful in your understanding of our place and God's plan and God's church. Because first, to be clear, it is not that we or the church replaces ethnic Israel or that we fulfill ethnic Israel. It's not Israel, arrow, church. That's just not true. And especially because if that were the case, Christ has stepped over. And so instead of that, Think about it. What is the gospel about? And what has Paul been arguing in this whole letter of Galatians? Well, it's that Christ is the fulfillment of ethnic Israel and the Old Testament promises. And then for us, for anyone, ethnic Jew or ethnic Gentile from all over the world, it's no longer about our ethnicity or following the law or not. Instead, it is about being in Christ. And so the idea is in the New Testament, and again from the Jewish apostles, the idea is that all the promises to Israel have been fulfilled in the Messiah, the Christ, who's the true Israel, the temple, the prophet, priest, king, etc. And now for the whole world, if you trust in Christ, you are now in the Israel of God, in the people of God, because you're in Christ. And then technically that people from all over the world in Christ is called the true Israel or his people or his church. And finally, I I know this is a lot, but I hope it's helpful. In case you are curious, this then does make sense, right? For examples, for other examples, like places like Romans 11, where if you know, Paul talks about this tree representing God's people, right? With that tree, he says that ethnic Israelites have been broken off of the tree if they don't have faith. And then he also says Gentiles are grafted in if they do have faith in Christ. And that's because, again, It's all about Christ. (laughs) Israel to Christ, to Christ's church and us. And so the center of it all, the center of our Bibles, the center of the story of God's people, the center really of all of world history, the center of our hope and salvation and eternal peace is Christ. And so for us, if we trust in Christ again, you are in the Israel of God. And that means practically we can't read our Old Testaments. (laughs) and see all the promises and stories and songs and proverbs and poetry in it, and we can know that this really is our book. There are promises. And that's because it's all pointing to, and all the promises are yes in Christ, the true Israel, and we in the gospel are now in him. Christ is the fulfillment of Israel, and we're in him. And so, that is our first section, brothers and sisters. And and again, that is by far our longest section. And I know it was a lot, but I do hope that you're now seeing how brilliant this one verse is from Paul. 
Because in summary, in this one verse, he shows how we have a standard, a canon, a right measurement. And it's the true gospel of boasting in Jesus alone and being made new by God. And he shows that those who trust this gospel get God's shalom peace and God's mercy. And finally, he shows that those who do that, who trust in Jesus, are the true Israel, the people of God. Or to say it most simply, in one verse, he clearly brings together and shows that God's plan of salvation has always been about Jesus. And in doing so, he puts an end to the arguments of those who want to make it about Jesus plus what we do or Jesus plus what ethnicity we are. Instead, now, Jew or Gentile from all over the world, big sinner, little sinner, it doesn't really matter. It's only about being in Jesus. And so that's our first section in verse 16. But that now leads us to our second, much shorter section in verse 17. And so that's verse 16, but now notice what Paul writes next in verse 17. Because this, combined with verse 16, is a powerful combination. So peace and mercy be upon all who trust this gospel, the Israel of God. But then Paul adds, look at your Bibles, verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So think about why this verse is so powerful. First, he starts with that from now on, meaning from now on since I've made this whole case. And then he adds, let no one cause me trouble, meaning I've laid out the case. This is the one true gospel. And so from now on, stop believing and stop teaching false gospels and troubling me. And so all of that makes sense. But then it's the reason he gives here, which is so fascinating and powerful. Because as you can see, the reason is from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For or because... Not just because this is the correct gospel or because I'm an apostle, but because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And hearing that, you can probably just feel the power of that. Just think about what Paul is doing here. So he's told these Galatian churches already in this letter that he's an apostle and he has authority. Right? He said that. And he's argued from the Old Testament and from logic all to show that this is the one true gospel. We are really saved by Jesus alone. He's done that. And yet, as he concludes in this last personal sentence from him, he doesn't primarily rehash those things. Instead, what is the final reason that he gives these Galatian churches to think about as to why they should trust what he's saying? Why they should believe this one true gospel? Well, it's believe me because I, and that I is emphatic in the original language, because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I'm suffering for this. And hearing that, you can probably already understand that he's saying this, especially because of what's going on in Galatia with these false teachers. Because remember, there's false teachers in another gospel in Galatia. But concerning these false teachers, remember verse 12 from last week, because there Paul showed that these false teachers actually taught what they taught in order not to be persecuted. They changed the message so that they wouldn't suffer. They avoided suffering. And that still happens all the time today. And so in contrast to that, What does Paul use to show that he's legit? That he is not trying to take advantage of them or gain fame or just win an argument? Well, it's that he's really suffered for this gospel message. He bears on his body the marks of Jesus, marks which are there because of this gospel of Jesus and marks which are similar to even the sufferings of Jesus. 
And of course, more could be said on that, but that, brothers and sisters, is a powerful and really a beautiful last personal note from Paul here then, isn't it? Because while verse 16 is a lot about what's right and true, it's about walking by this one standard of the gospel, while that's true, what is beautiful and powerful is that here in verse 17, Paul reminds us this is no mere debate. Instead, this message of Jesus is so precious that it is worth suffering for. And for us then, this verse has two big applications for our lives, two big applications. First, it shows us that it's believe the one true gospel. The gospel which does make us right with God and does result in peace and mercy in Christ. Still, as we believe this gospel, yet as Jesus himself told us, we will still suffer. We will still suffer, not randomly, not ever randomly, as God is in control of all of our suffering and he uses it for our good, but for here and now, life includes suffering. And so that's the first, most obvious application. But then second, and perhaps more specific, to what's actually going on here. Second, this shows us that our suffering, though, can be a huge witness. A huge witness. And honestly, not only a witness, but specifically, this verse shows us that our suffering even can be a powerful argument, a defense for the truthfulness of this gospel. And it is that that I hope, in a way, is encouraging to you and how Paul brings up suffering at the end of this letter here. Because the truth is we all suffer, even as Christians. And of course, we know that. But what maybe we don't know as much is that suffering and trusting Christ in that suffering is really such a strong witness, an argument for the reality of all this. It's a proof of the truthfulness of this gospel we say and believe. Because again, that's essentially what Paul's doing here. The written arguments and proofs have been made. And he's right. This is the one true gospel. But there's one last thing he wants to write to hopefully convince many of these Galatians and maybe even some of these false teachers. And that's how he's bearing on his own body the marks of Jesus. And he's not changing the message. And he's still trusting Jesus. (laughs) And for us too, then, that's a hugely powerful witness. And it certainly glorifies Jesus a lot as well. So that's verses 16 and 17 in our two main sections, church, and that's the way Paul brings to an end this letter. But that all then finally leads us to close now with how Paul closes in verse 18. And so look there now, our last verse of Galatians, Galatians 6, 18. Paul concludes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And so on, that one, on, that, on the one hand, this is a typical ending from the Apostle Paul. You might know that because he usually does end his letters with Jesus' grace be with you. Because the idea is now, as you and I and the Galatian church now try to go and apply what Paul has said, as we try to trust Jesus in this one true gospel and walk by the Spirit, we need Jesus' grace. We need the risen Jesus to help us trust and love and follow him. And so that part, though, is more typical of Paul. But what actually is sort of unique here is how Paul's second to last word is that word brothers. And that's true in the original as well. And in fact, brothers really is the last word here besides that amen. And that is unique because he usually ends his letters with his grace be with you or with your spirit and often with amen. But here in Galatians, he adds brothers. And thinking about it, I think that's really intentional because finally on this letter, we should note that yes, this letter of Galatians, perhaps more than any of other of Paul's letters, has been somewhat contentious. 
And that's because, as we've seen, false teachers, teaching a false gospel is a big deal. But also, it seems that Paul ends here with this word, brothers, because he wants to remind those Galatian Christians. And through him, God wants to remind us who genuinely trust in Christ as well, that not only are we those who believe this one true gospel, not only are we the Israel of God in Christ, but also we're family. We're in this together in our faith in Christ, in our emphasizing of Christ and his cross, in our trying to walk by the Spirit in our suffering. We are family in this Savior of ours, Jesus Christ. And so church, that's Galatians. And personally, now as we finish off this message and this letter, let me just say publicly that I have loved studying and teaching through this book. God has been so gracious to my soul through so much of this, and it's been a huge avenue of grace, and so I hope it has been to you as well. And of course, though, and finally on this, of course, if it has been to you as well, it's been a blessing to us because it's always great to hear from God and his word. And after this series, to be clear, we as a church will certainly always continue to go through God's word together. But also, I do pray that this book has been a blessing because the truth is, brothers and sisters, for you, for me, for everyone all over the world, this really is the best message in the world. We are saved and okay with God and we have peace with God now and a promised peace forever with one another and the whole world and we have our sins really removed from us and we are really known and loved. All things that this book has talked about, we have it all in Jesus Christ alone. And that is good news. And that's what we need to hear over and over and over. And so one last time, church, let's be very clear because Galatians has been very clear that Jesus Christ and what he's done And faith in him alone is the one true gospel. Christianity is not mainly about being good people or even being loving people. Instead, it mainly is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He came as the fulfillment of the whole plan of God for creation and God's plan in the Old Testament. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place, taking our sins and the curse that we deserve. He rose again physically from the dead in history three days later. He reigns as king. He loves his people and he knows and cares for each of us individually. He has all authority in heaven and on earth right now and soon he is coming back and he will make everything, including you and me, right and good and beautiful again. That is the gospel, the good news. And we simply trust him, believing and knowing that that news is true. (laughs) Because it is. And so church, let's really believe that. With everything that we've seen and talked about, let's be people who live our lives by and walk by this standard of the one true gospel. Let's trust Jesus. Let's boast in him alone. And let's live for his glory. Amen? Amen. Praise God for his word, church. Praise God for his word. Let's pray.